None of us get where we want to go overnight. It's a disciplined process over time of small, intentional steps. On this episode, the strategies and mindset you need to become the person you want to be. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 376. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Many of us who are part of this community are thinking often about how do we become the person we want to be. We've heard a lot of the tactics over the years. We've read a lot of the books that help us to not only become more effective leaders, but become more effective people. And today's guest has done a ton of research, writing, and work around helping people to be as effective as possible. He is going to help us to really answer that question in a substantial way today. I'm glad to welcome James Clear to the show. James is an author and speaker focused on habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Time, and on CBS This Morning. His website receives millions of visitors each month, including me, and hundreds of thousands subscribe to his popular email newsletter. He's a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work is used by teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball. Through his online course, The Habits Academy, James has taught more than 10,000 leaders, managers, coaches, and teachers. And he is the author of the new book, Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. James, so glad to welcome you to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's good to talk to you. As I mentioned, I've been following your work for a while and passed along some of your articles to our community. You've just been doing some amazing things uh, in your writing and research. And I didn't know though your backstory and just what brought you to what you're doing today. And as I was reading the book, the first story you tell in the book is how you almost died in high school in a baseball accident. What happened? So, you know, this book is about habits and the introduction to the book talks about my personal story and how I was first exposed to some of the ideas that that I talk about later in the book. So as you mentioned, when I was in high school, I had this very serious injury. I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. It was an accident, but the fallout from it was substantial. So I, you know, I shattered both eye sockets, broke my nose, broke the bone behind my nose, which is fairly deep into your skull and pretty hard to, to break. I had multiple seizures that day. I couldn't breathe on my own. I was air carried to the hospital. I ended up being put into a coma overnight. And then once I was stabilized the next day, they finally released me from that. The recovery was just a long process. I mean, it took eight or nine months and I was you know, doing very basic stuff early on. I mean, my first physical therapy session, I was just practicing walking in a straight line. And as I mentioned in the introduction, at that point in my life, baseball was not only the cause of the injury, but also a really substantial part of my life. My dad had played Major League Baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals uh, and their minor league organization. And then, um, you know, growing up, I always wanted to be like him as well and, and have this career. So the process of getting back onto the field was a very difficult one for me. And in a sense, my hand was forced in the sense that I had to start with small habits. You know, like I I didn't really have a chance to transform or have some radical shift overnight. Like I I couldn't just flip a switch and be better all of a sudden. And that's where it kind of links into the book and the core idea of atomic habits, which is that, you know, if you can build these small changes, if you can find little ways to get 1% better each day, 
and then layer those on top of each other and kind of create this system of small improvements, then you can end up with a pretty remarkable result in the long run. And so that was really my first experience practicing those ideas. I didn't really have a language for it at the time, whereas you know now I do. But I was able to put those ideas into practice in my life and then uh, over the last six or seven years have researched and wrote about it much more. And now I, this book is sort of the culmination of those, the practice and the theory coming together in, in one bundle. One of the lines that's in the book is one that I think might be surprising to folks who haven't thought a lot about habits. And, and even as I was reading, I was thinking, oh, that's, that's interesting. You wrote, goals are at odds with long-term progress. Tell me more about that. Well, that particular section of the book is talking about this this idea that I lay out between systems and goals. I first heard about it from Scott Adams, the cartoonist who who makes the Dilbert comic, and oh, he yeah. he's a little more adamant about disliking goals. I think goals serve a purpose. They're useful for setting a sense of direction and figuring out, you know, what area you're moving toward. But once you've decided what direction you want to go in, it's pretty much all about the system. I mean, this is coming from someone who is very goal-oriented for a long time. I mean, I would set goals for the grades that I wanted to get in school or the amount of weight I wanted to lift in the gym or how much money I wanted my business to make in the next you know month or quarter or whatever. And as, at some point I realized that setting the goal was the easy part, right? Like I, sometimes I'd set a goal and I would achieve it. And a lot of times I would set a goal and I would fail. And it really didn't matter if the goal was there or not. It was really much more about the system and the process for whether uh, determining whether or not I achieved the goal. This is something you see in a lot of different domains that the winners and losers in any particular area, a lot of the time they have the same goals. You know, I mean, every author wants to write a best-selling book. Every candidate who applies for a job wants to get the job. Every Olympian wants to win a gold medal. They all have the same goal. So if the goal is the same, it cannot be the thing that distinguishes between the performance. I think what does distinguish is the system. And bring it back to your initial question here, this idea that True long-term thinking is goalless thinking. And what I mean by that is achieving a goal only changes your life for the moment. If you have a goal to clean a messy room and you've got all this clutter around, you might get motivated for an hour and clean it up and you have a clean room for now. But if you don't change the habits behind the goal, if you don't change the sloppy and messy habits that led to a cluttered room in the first place, then you're just going to end up with a messy room again in two weeks or a month or whenever. And this is true for almost any area of life. We think that the results need to change, but the results are not the thing that needs to change. What needs to change are the habits and the process and the system behind the results. It's like we treat a symptom without treating the cause. And so if that is true, then when you achieve goals, you're only changing your life for the moment. It's just a point in time. I mean, even if you're, you play your whole life to win the Super Bowl, you win the Super Bowl, but then the next season starts again the next day. And so the people who truly master their craft they're not in it for the goal. You know, goal-oriented thinking is about winning a particular game, but system-oriented thinking is about continuing to play the game. And I think that if you look at pretty much any master, no matter what the field, they have this sort of goalless approach where they're just looking for ways to endlessly refine and continuously improve. And so if you can shift your focus from the outcome and from the goal and more toward the system, then ultimately you often end up with better results, which of course is the paradox of all of this. You know, we set goals because we want to achieve results, but if we just focused on the system, that's probably how we would actually get there. Yeah, that point really struck me as you wrote that you can start a new habit with a lot of motivation, but you keep it going by really it becoming part of your identity. And you really do make this clear distinction in your work on outcome-based habits 
versus identity habits. What is the key part of that distinction when you think about that? Many habits are implicitly outcome-based, which is to say that people start with the outcome they want to achieve, and then they come up with a plan or a set of habits or a, a process for trying to achieve that. So it's, you know, I want to get skinny, and so I'll follow this diet, and then I'll lose 20 pounds. And typically, people don't really think about it much more beyond that. But I would say that there are sort of multiple levels to, of change. So there's the outcome-based change, which I would say is like kind of the outer layer of this onion. Then there's the next layer in, which are the the habits and the process and the system. And so that's kind of the second layer. But then there's the deeper layer, which I would call your identity, the set of beliefs that you have, the self-image. And most people start with the outcome, come up with a plan. The identity just sort of comes naturally. The key here is not that one level is better or worse than the other. The key, and the answer to your question, what is the most crucial part of this process? I think the key is the direction of change. So rather than starting with the outcome and letting it fall naturally from the habits to the identity, it's more useful probably, and in many cases certainly, to start with the identity and then build your habits around that and then let the outcomes and results come naturally. So I just gave the example of, oh, I want to be skinny, so outcome is I want to lose 20 pounds. If I follow this diet, then I'll lose weight or whatever. And then you don't even think about, you know, what kind of person does that mean I have to be and so on. But if instead you inverted that and said, well, who is the type of person that could lose 20 pounds? Well, maybe it's the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. Then you focus on fostering that identity. So the identity is the first thing. I want to become the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. Then you build the habits. Okay, how do I build the habit of not missing workouts? And then you let the result come naturally. And I think that this not only gets you to focus on mastering the art of showing up and fostering the identity of being the type of person you want to be, it also helps a little bit with mitigating such a focus on results and lets you push that off a little, you know, because there's there's this weird thing that happens sometimes if you build an outcome-based habit, which is that you make it all about the outcome. It's like, well, I set a goal to lose 20 pounds, so if I only lose 15, then I feel like a failure, which of course is the exact opposite of how you should feel because you're making progress. And so goals sometimes box you into this either or dichotomy, either you achieve the goal and you're a success or anything else happens and you failed and identity based habits overcome some of those pitfalls by helping you show up each day and foster that identity rather than worrying about when or where a particular result will occur. Yeah. And as you point out that so much of our society, certainly our business culture is focused around short term, immediate, or at least fairly close to immediate results. I'm wondering when you're teaching people this and coaching people on making this shift of stepping away a little bit from the outcome and stepping more toward the identity, what do you find is helpful in getting people to not only shift their mindset a bit, but maybe even being able to articulate that for themselves of what an identity kind of conversation looks like? Well, it's a good question. There's sort of two parts. So the first is like, how do I articulate that? How do I figure out, you know, who is the type of person I desire to be or what is the identity I should be working toward? And those are big questions. I mean, you know, there are all sorts of exercises people go through for writing out their principles and their values and things like that. And and all of that can be helpful. Now, I think the, the key distinction there is that's not a one-time process. You know, I think you need a, a habit of reflection and review, something to come back to each year to say, all right, you know, are these still my principles? Are these still the core values that are most important to me? Life is always changing. So you kind of, you need to evolve alongside it. And that's true for your, your values and principles as well. The things that the beliefs that make up your identity from a practical standpoint, I do this in two ways. So 
The first is I have an annual review at the end of each year. If you want to see them, actually, I think it's jamesclear.com slash annual dash review. I ask three questions. The first is uh, what went well this year? And I usually track the habits that are most important to me. So things like how many articles I've written, how many workouts I've done, how many new places I've traveled to. Second question is what didn't go so well. So, you know, I have to kind of call myself to the carpet and think about where, where did I fall down? And then the third one is like, where am I headed or what's, you know, what's coming next? And so that's just a chance to take stock of where I'm at and then look toward the future. And that is sort of the, the time when I measure my actual behavior, try to become more aware of what I'm actually doing. And then six months later, I conduct what I call an integrity report. And that's in the summer. That also has three questions. First question is, what are my core values? So the, again, this is the process of revisiting this. What is my desired identity? Who's the type of person do I want to be? Second question is, how have I been living by those? So it's kind of a chance for me to maybe pair up some of those things that were a success in the annual review with my values. And then the third question is the most important one and the one that kind of brings this process all together, which is, where have I failed to live by those core values? And it's very rare, maybe impossible to find somebody who doesn't think they have integrity. I mean, pretty much everybody's going to say, yeah, I'm a person of integrity. It's usually not that we make like one grave mistake that pulls us off track. It's a bunch of just this once exceptions. You know, we find ourselves in a circumstance we're like, well, this time it's a little bit different, so I'll do it this way. But you do that for three or five or 10 years, and all of a sudden you turn around and the person you are, the things you're doing are different than what you thought your character was. And so this third question, the integrity report kind of pulls me back to center a little bit and forces me to make sure, all right, these are the habits I've actually done over the last year. And these are the values that say are important and these actually matching up. So that process of reflection review, I think is important. And I bring it up here because if you're trying to figure out, you know, what is the desired identity I'm working toward? It's going to change. It's a moving target. And so you need a, a process for updating and expanding your beliefs as, as life shifts. So the second part of this is, all right, you have a process for reflecting and reviewing and maybe thinking about the type of person you want to be. I should say the first time you go through this, it can be helpful just to reverse engineer a little bit. Most people, even if they don't know the identity they want to build, they do sort of have a better handle on the results they want. So if you said something like, I want to have a business that earns a million dollars next year, well, you could say, all right, well, who's the type of person that could run a million dollar business? Well, maybe it's the type of person who makes five sales calls a day or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so then you start to get closer to what that identity is. So that that question, who is the type of person that can help answer that a little bit? You just plug in your the result you want there and kind of back into the identity that way. And then, of course, you update and improve from there. But once you have an idea of what you're looking to move toward, it really becomes about the habits that you're building. And this, I think, is a really crucial part of at least my approach or my process, which is that your habits are how you embody a particular identity. So every time you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who is clean and organized. Every time you sit down to write, you embody the identity of a writer. Every time you go to the gym, you embody the identity of a fit person. And so in that sense, your habits are how you prove an identity to yourself. And this is a really crucial part of the process because oftentimes people will throw out phrases like, oh, just fake it till you make it or something like that. But fake it till you make it is asking yourself to hold on to a belief without evidence for it. And there's a word for that. It's delusion. If a, if a belief does not have evidence behind it, it's really hard for the brain to latch onto it over the long run. But each time that you perform a small habit, each time that you, it's effectively like Every behavior, or every action you take casts a vote for the type of person that you believe that you are. 
And as you cast these little votes, it's like you accumulate this pile of evidence. And the larger the pile gets, the more the tail, the scales kind of tip in your favor and you start to actually believe that about yourself. You know, if you, if you kick a soccer ball once, you don't really think that you're a soccer player. But if you show up to practice every day and do it for an hour each afternoon, at some point, six months from now or a year from now or whenever, you sort of cross this invisible threshold and you're like, oh, well, I guess I'm a soccer player. And it works the same way with any other habit or behavior or any other aspect of your identity. Habits are the method through which you prove that identity to yourself. And so this, I think, is another reason why habits are maybe the ultimate reason why habits are so important. It's true that habits can deliver external results. They can help you be more productive or lose weight or earn more money or reduce stress. And all that stuff is great. But habits also are the method through which we develop our self-image, through which we like prove the type of identity and person that we are to ourselves. And so if you can master your habits, you can, in a sense, like upgrade and expand your identity. You can prove that you're a new type of person. And that's a very empowering thing if you're looking to build confidence or believe something new about yourself. And it's also a reason why small habits are important, because even if you do something, you know, like you might uh, you might have a really busy day and only have time to get like 10 push-ups in. And you're like, well, should I even bother because I'm not going to get fit just from doing 10 push-ups, which in a results-oriented mindset, in an outcome-based mindset, that is technically true. But if you're focused on the identity-based mindset, then doing 10 push-ups, even when the circumstances weren't ideal, even when life was crazy, even when you were really busy, well, that's still casting a vote for being a fit person, for forging that identity. And in that sense, it's small habits can be meaningful, even if they're still tiny. And if it's meaningful, it actually is big. And so that's kind of another one of the paradoxes of, of small habits and the reinforcement of this identity is that these little actions we take each day, these 1% votes for or against our desired identity, end up reinforcing the type of person we believe that we are. And once you believe it, it's much easier to stick to it for the long run, good or bad. Yeah, the two key steps you mentioned so clearly in this part of the book on, on how to create this new identity is the two steps of deciding who you want to be and then proving it to yourself with the small wins and the the daily votes, as you mentioned. And I'm thinking for a lot of our listening audience, I know a lot of the people you work with too, James, that that small win is often an obstacle. You write also, you know, we convince ourselves that massive success requires massive action. And yet a lot of times it's the small things over time that make the bigger difference. How do you help people to kind of reframe their thinking around, I, I need to take massive action if I'm going to actually do anything meaningful? Well, your habits are a, like a double-edged sword in the sense that they can compound for you or against you. The phrase I use in the book is habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. So the same way that money can multiply through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them over time. You know, like time will magnify whatever you feed it. So if you feed it 1% improvements and small positive daily habits, then that will compound over time. And if you feed it 1% declines or errors and small negative habits, then those will compound over time. And the really hard part about this, and I, I think one thing that helps people reframe it and helps people see it in a different way is that you need to realize that on any given day, this really feels like nothing. I mean, what is the difference between 
going to the gym tonight or not going to the gym or eating a healthy lunch or ordering a burger and fries. I mean, there's really the scale is basically the same. Your body looks pretty much the same at the end of the night. It's very difficult to see how that matters in the moment. And the same thing is true for many other habits. I mean, if you study a new language for an hour tonight, you still haven't learned the language, but it's only two or five or 10 years later that the effects of those daily choices compound and add up and it becomes very apparent the difference between making a choice that is slightly better or slightly worse. I think the first step to understanding that is to to reframe what that progress looks like in your mind. We often think that it should be like this linear path. You know, I put in a little bit of effort and I get a little bit of results. And so that means if I put in massive effort, then I must get massive results. Mm. But in fact, the process of, of habits compounding and of making change, it actually doesn't look linear at all. It's much more kind of like that hockey stick curve where it's very flat and you don't see a whole lot in the beginning. And this is a hallmark of any compounding process, which is the greatest outcomes are delayed. And so in the book, I refer to this as the plateau of latent potential. But it's this idea that, you know, say you walk into a room and uh, it's very cold. You can see your breath. There's this ice cube on the table. It's like 25 degrees and you heat it up 26 degrees, 27 degrees, 28, 29. Still nothing has changed. It's just this ice cube sitting there, 30, 31 And then you get to 32 degrees and it's this one degree shift, no different than all the other changes that came before it. And suddenly you hit this phase transition, the ice cube begins to melt. And a lot of the time, the process of change is, is a lot like that where you're, you're putting in work day after day and you don't really see the outcomes at all. And so it's really easy to get discouraged there. You know, it's like, I've been running for a month. Like I can't see any change in my body. Why am I even bothering? Or I've been making all these sales calls for three months and, you know, still we aren't profitable. Like what, you know, why am I doing this? Maybe I'm not cut out to be an entrepreneur. What you need is to realize that the work is not being wasted. It's just being stored, you know, like complaining about putting in a little bit of work and not seeing the results that you want is sort of like complaining about heating an ice cube up from 25 to 31 degrees. The work is still there. You just need to give it time to release And this is what the process of building slightly better habits often feels like. It feels like you're stuck on this plateau and nothing's working because you expect it to be linear, put a little bit of work in, get a little bit of results out. And once you reframe what that graph looks like in your mind, I think it becomes a little bit easier to commit to the long term and understand what the process of building better habits looks like and why the outcomes are so often so delayed. I think this is a really hard thing for a lot of high achievers and a lot of people who want to move quickly to, like you said, reframe this. Getting to that point where by realizing that moving smaller and and following that path, they actually in the long run will do better. I'm curious, have you noticed for people who are able to kind of reprogram themselves to start to think that way? Have you seen any patterns or or hacks that have really worked to get people kind of shifting their thinking on that outside of our traditional ways we think of getting better? Well, as you would expect, this is going to vary widely based on the domain that you're talking about or the, you know, the particular problem people are facing. But I think there are probably two principles that people could use that that would help a lot. So the first is, I guess for lack of a better term, simplicity or focusing on what matters most. So in many areas, when people look to build better habits, they start doing all this stuff that makes the last 5% of difference. And this is probably true for a lot of projects in, in general, whether it be work or personal related. 
you know, you want to get in shape. And so you buy better running shoes and you try to figure out what kind of protein powder or fish oil you should be taking. And you buy some knee sleeves and all this other stuff. And that makes the last like 2% of difference. The thing that makes the biggest difference for whether or not you get in shape is do you not miss workouts? You know, are you getting your reps in? And for pretty much any area, it's uh, similar in that regard. You know, so I tell one story in the book, this guy who was a stockbroker and he came in, it was one of his first jobs out of college. He's like 23 years old. People weren't expecting a whole lot of, from him. And within two years, he built the biggest book of business in the firm. And he did it just by doing one simple habit. He had these two little mugs on his desk, cups, and one of them was empty and the other one had 120 paper clips in it. And he would make a sales call and put the phone down and then move one paper clip over and then do it all over again, pick up the phone, make another sales call. And he would just keep dialing the phone until he made 120 sales calls each day. Hmm. That was the thing that made 95% of the difference in that job is were you putting in your reps? And his partners, his peers were doing things like reading analyst reports or checking the weather, the local news cycle, trying to predict how that would impact stock market prices, checking what the actual prices were. And he, he just didn't bother with any of that. He just focused on the thing that was the, the most important. So that's the first kind of principle that you could take away. One of the key things there is that the distinction between what's going to really move the needle. So all the other things you mentioned that the other stock analysts were doing are things that would move the needle a little bit and did in some ways contribute to what was happening with stocks, but they weren't the big primary thing that was really going to drive the difference. And what he did was really focused his habits around the thing that was most important, the biggest thing that was going to correlate to success, if I'm hearing you right. I think that's right. And there's a, an important distinction to make there because people might be thinking like, oh, well, I thought you were talking about 1% habits. Like, why wouldn't you focus on all the little 1% things that make a difference, like checking the news reports or checking the, you know, buying better running shoes or whatever. But this is a phrase that I, I use in the book, which is that what you want is to focus your 1% improvements on building the habits in the moment, making it easier to do in the moment, the things that pay off in the long run. And what you find is that many habits, pretty much any human behavior, produces multiple outcomes across time. So, you know, if you were to take a bad habit, like, I don't know, eating a donut or something like that, the immediate outcome is favorable. It's tasty, it's sugary, you enjoy the experience. But the ultimate outcome, which is, you know, that you gain weight in two weeks or a month or whatever, is unfavorable. With good habits, it's often the reverse. The immediate outcome of going to the gym, for example, is unfavorable. It's hard, you sweat, takes a little bit of sacrifice, takes time and energy. The ultimate outcome is favorable. You're in shape two weeks or a month from now. And so much of the battle of building good habits and breaking bad ones is figuring out how to take the consequences of your bad habits and pull them into the immediate moment and how to take the benefits of your good habits and pull those into the immediate moment. So you have you feel a little bit of success and have a reason to repeat it right then. And this is something that I refer to in the book as the cardinal rule of behavior change, which is behaviors that are immediately rewarded get repeated and behaviors that are immediately punished get avoided. Mm -hmm. And so part of the process here is figuring out how you can provide that immediate incentive to show up and do the things in the moment that pay off in the long run. And so that's kind of the, the key distinction there with, with those 1% changes and what I'm talking about when I'm saying 1% changes can compound and add up. The second part of this is what I would call broad funnel tight filter. So if the first part of this process of the thing that, you know, what, you, what do you look at? What are the commonalities between people who implement this well? The first part is simplifying and focusing on the fundamentals, putting in your reps. What's the thing that moves the needle the most? 
The second part is this process of like exploration. And so broad funnel tight filter means casting a very wide net, getting exposed to a lot of ideas, but then being very strict about which ones you implement. And so, you know, you can imagine like you're going to take on a new project and it's in a topic or an area that you're not that familiar with. So you pick up 50 books on the topic and you read 10 minutes of each to see which one is the most effective. You quit most of them. You double down on the ones that say the three or five that are written the best or the most useful. You read those twice. And then from those, you try to pull out, you know, the two or three ideas that are the most actionable and highest leverage. And so by casting that very, very broad funnel and having a very tight filter, you end up with those most potent ideas, which comes back to the first point about focusing on the things that move the needle the most. James, there's so much here that you've already gotten me thinking on in my own habits that I'll implement immediately. And we haven't even hit on most of what you've got in the book. One of the key things that you do is really do a deep dive on not only how to create good habits, but how to break bad ones. And you go through a four-step process for both of those in the book. So for those who are thinking about this a lot, and we're getting you thinking on really changing habits, I'd certainly recommend checking that out. And you've got a website set up with the book and a bunch of other things on it as, as well, right, James? Yeah, that's right. So if you'd like to, to check out the book and learn more about habits, it's called Atomic Habits, and you can find it at atomichabits.com. And that page not only has uh, links to the book, but also a secret chapter that's not included in the book, chapter by chapter audio commentary from me on why I wrote particular chapters and some of the research behind them, and then a variety of downloads and guides, an appendix on how to apply the ideas in the book to business, another appendix on how to apply the ideas to parenting. So anyway, you can check out the bonus chapters and all the additional stuff also at atomichabits.com. I'm going to have links to all of that in this week's leadership guide for those of you get that on Wednesday. James, one other question for you is you've been really not only through the book, but through your writing over the last several years, you've been doing a ton of research on this. I'm curious, as you've researched and as you've written this book and as you've worked with thousands of people in changing habits, what have you come across in the last couple of years that you've changed your mind on habits and behavior change? The short answer is the probably the most common question I get is how long does it take to build a better habit? And so you'll see all kinds of stuff going out there, you know, like 21 days or 30 days or whatever. The most common one right now is 66 days because there was one study done that shows that 66 days is the average amount of time it took to build a habit. But even within that study, the range was quite wide. If it was something easy, like drinking a glass of water at lunch, it was just a few weeks. If it was something hard, like going for a run after work every day, that was like seven or eight months. But the honest answer to that question, how long does it take to build a better habit, is forever. Because if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And I think instead, we need to look at habits not as a finish line to be crossed, but as a lifestyle to be lived. And if you look at it as a lifestyle to live, as a permanent change to add, then it becomes more apparent why we need to focus on small habits, little changes, small lifestyle adjustments that we can sustain over time. So that's one key thing. The second one is about the power of the social environment. I briefly touched on this earlier, but so many of our behaviors each day are socially influenced or socially reinforced. You know, society leans heavily on us all. We have things like you can just take common habits like you step onto the elevator and you turn around to face the front or you have a job interview and you wear a suit and tie or a dress or something nice. And there's no reason it has to be that way. You could turn around and face the back of the elevator. You could wear a bathing suit to a job interview. But 
We don't because it violates the shared expectations of the group. And we are all members of multiple tribes. You're members of like big groups, like what it means to be American or Australian or French. And you're members of small groups, like what it means to be a neighbor on your street or a part of your local volunteer organization or a member of your local gym. And all of those tribes, big and small, have shared expectations that are part of them. And in many cases, you need to make sure that the habits that you want to build align with the shared expectations of the group. So the phrase I use in the book is join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. And I don't think before writing the book and before researching this for the last few years, I don't think I fully appreciated how meaningful those social influences are. Because in many cases, if you're trying to go against the grain of the social group, what you end up needing is a lot of courage because you, if you don't have a new tribe to join, you end up feeling alone. And most people would rather be wrong with the crowd, with the tribe, than be right by themselves and be alone. So if you're looking to build a new habit, it really helps if you have a new tribe to go to where your desired behavior is the normal behavior and you can belong with them and not sacrifice the sense of belonging and social support that we all need to thrive and survive. James Clear is the author of Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. James, thanks a ton for all this wisdom. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, James, and a number of related episodes. If you found this conversation helpful today, I think you'll also find episode 184 helpful to you, Getting Things Done with David Allen. David Allen, the founder of Getting Things Done and the best-selling author of the book by the same name, joined me on episode 184. We talked through the Getting Things Done system. It is a very effective system for so many of us on time management and productivity. And of course, one of the big focuses, those of you who are fans of GTD know, is it's all about the next action. Very much relates to this conversation of if you want to become the person you want to be, it's not just about having that long-term vision. That's key, as we've talked about on the show many times. It's also key what we do next. What's that very next action? And if you're looking for a framework to do that well, I don't think there's a better one than getting things done on your productivity. Again, that's episode 184. Also, you will find a value episode number 196, Create Behavior That Lasts. My guest on that episode was Marshall Goldsmith. He talked about his most recent book, Triggers, on that episode. Also, we talked extensively about behavior change as leaders and how he coaches leaders in order to do that more effectively. Also, how he does that in his own personal life of affecting behavior change. Of course, so much of what we talked about in this conversation is about behavior change and creating good habits. So if that is of value to you and you want to hear from one of the top coaches in the world, episode 196 is definitely worth checking out for you. And finally, I'd recommend episode 217, The Best Way to Make New Habits Reality. Kendra Kinnison was my guest on that episode. She's one of the coaches at Coach.me, and we talked through some of the best strategies to use in order to really get new habits moving. It lines up very well. Uh, so many of the things she recommended on that episode with all of the research that James has presented in his new work as well. Again, that's episode 217. And you can get access to all of those past episodes just by going over to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. You'll see a place there. You can use the drop-down menu and 
Select the topic you're most interested in, that and many other topics. In fact, habits is one of the topics on the list there. And if you haven't already set up your free membership, you can set it up there and it'll give you access to all of that. Plus, my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday with resources I've tracked down for you during the week that I think will serve you in your leadership development. Plus, access to all the member casts, the entire library, and so much more that's in there. You can activate all of that just by going over to coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership. I look forward to seeing you there. Have a fabulous week and see you next Monday. Back with my friend Tom Henschel talking about how to lead offsites. See you next Monday. Take care.